Heavenly Father, we know that you are good and what you do is good. So, Lord, we ask that you would teach us your good decrees even now so that we can behave in a way that is right before you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been working our way through the book of John together and John chapter 10 in particular, and we've been seeing how Jesus has been describing his relationship with God's people as a shepherd to his sheep. And we've been unpacking that slowly as we've been working through the chapter together. And last week we looked at the security that Jesus gives to his sheep that they are safe within his hand. And so we saw the words there in verse 29 where he says, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Not only are we safe in the Son's hand, the Shepherd's hand, we're safe in the Father's hand as well. And then Jesus said in verse 30 that I and the Father are one. And that is what we're going to pick up on this week because this is the statement that the Jews have picked up on as well. They're not so interested in the fact that people who belong to Jesus are safe in Jesus' hand. They're very interested in the statement in verse 30, I and the Father are one. Because what is their response in verse 31 to Jesus' statement? Verse 31 of John chapter 10, it says, Again the Jews picked up stones to stone him. They hear that Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And what do they respond with? They take up stones to stone Jesus. But what does Jesus do in response? He doesn't flee immediately, but we see in verse 32, it says, Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? He's saying, okay, you're wanting to stone me? Why is it? And he's saying, "Is which of the miracles that I've done is it that you have a problem with? and that you're going to stone me for? Which of the works that I've performed are you really irritated by and you're going to kill me for? And then we see the response of the Jews. Verse 33, We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. As I said, the Jews are not interested in Jesus' miracles. They're not interested in his teaching about the fact that we're safe in the hands of Jesus they're interested in his statement there in verse 30. I and the Father are one. They say, you are blaspheming. You are claiming to be God. And so therefore you are worthy of death. And so we will execute you right now. But Jesus defends himself. He doesn't run away. He defends himself. And it's interesting, he actually has two different ways that he defends his divinity here. He does not deny that he is divine. In fact, he defends his divinity. And one of the ways that he defends it is by pointing out to the fact, the fact to these Jews that they already accept the idea that humans can be referred to as gods. Now, how does he do this? Well, he points them to the fact that they hold to a scripture in the Old Testament that refers to humans as gods. And we see that in verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law... I have said you are gods. I have said you are gods. And so he references this psalm in the Old Testament, Psalm 82, which the Jews hold to be authoritative. They hold it to be the word of God. And yet in that psalm, it actually refers to humans as gods. You may say, does it really? 
Well, we read it at the beginning of the service and you may not have picked up on it then either. Like some of these Jews have probably never picked up on the fact that humans are referred to as gods. So let's look with the, at that psalm briefly together now. Turn back with me to page 583 if you've got a church Bible. Page 583. I saw some of you are already flipping back there ahead of me. Quite curious yourself. Psalm 82. Verse 1, we'll read from verse 1, and uh, we'll read the whole psalm. So Psalm 82, verse 1, is the psalm of Asaph, and it says, God presides in the great assembly. He gives judgment among the gods. Gods referring to gods there. So who are these gods? How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the cause of the weak and fathers. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. It appears that he's referring to people who are judges within Judaism, who have the power over the weak and needy, to have power, who have power over the oppressed. And they're referred to as gods. The same Hebrew word that is used to refer to God himself is used to refer to these human judges. It goes on in verse 5. They know nothing, they understand nothing, they walk about in darkness, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. These judges, they're not very good judges. Uh, They understand nothing, they know nothing, they walk about in darkness. Nonetheless, in verse 6 it says, I said you are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere men, you will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. Verse 6 there, once again saying, you humans will die like mere men, it says in verse 7, but here in verse 6, I'm going to refer to you as gods, sons of the God most high. And this is what Jesus is picking up in John chapter 10. He's saying it's not so unreasonable that a human could actually proclaim to be referred to as God. The incarnation is not that unreasonable, that God would take on flesh, particularly when you look at it in the light of Psalm 82. Jesus is certainly God if bad human judges can claim to be God, if they have been called God by God himself. And that's what he says in verse uh, 35 of John chapter 10. Flip back with me to John chapter 10. Come away from Psalm 82. Psalm 82, verse 35. Jesus continues, he says, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? If those bad human judges are referred to as God, then surely the one whom God has set apart for himself and sent into this world can refer to himself as God. Basically, the argument that is being used here is what we call from the lesser to the greater. If something is true at a lesser extent, then of course it's true at a greater extent. Try and give you an example from everyday life. You may say, when you see some misty, light rain coming down, you may say to your wife, it's raining. And you would be right to say that, wouldn't you? Now, if you were speaking to an Irishman who's used to light, misty rain most of the time, he might say, no, that's just a nice summer's day. But I will give you, if you call that rain, when it's a downpour coming through, 
You can certainly call that rain. If you call something small rain, some light, misty rain rain, well, then you're certainly going to call it rain when it's raining cats and dogs. Or another example might be if you call a matchbox car a car, you refer to something lesser as a car, then of course the car that you drive, you're right to call it a car as well. You go from the lesser to the greater. If you call something lesser one thing, then of course the greater thing is also worthy to be called by that name. And so Jesus is saying, if you call other mere humans gods, as Scripture says, Jewish judges, or even the Jewish people, some people might interpret Psalm 82 to be referring to, then of course, when God himself comes, it is not unreasonable to call him God. The incarnation is not immediately blasphemous, as some other religions might say. If you look at Islam, they say it is abhorrent to consider that God himself would take on human flesh. But the same scriptures that Muhammad recommends, and Muhammad does in the Quran, tell us to read the Old Testament, to read the scriptures. He has a high view of the scriptures. Those same scriptures that Muhammad, the founder of Islam, holds to, refer to humans as gods. And so we have here a defense from Jesus that it's okay for him to call himself God because in Psalm 82, there is a precedence for calling some humans gods. And that's in a lesser way. Yes, of course, they are human. But he, as God's one and only son, who has been sent into the world, then, of course, he can call himself God. But he doesn't leave it there as his only defense for his divinity. He has another defense. And what is that? He once again points to his miracles. Jesus again and again uses his miracles as signs, his good works as signs, to point to the fact that he is God himself. So we read in verse 37, after he has spoken about how it is not blasphemy for him to call himself God's son, verse 37 it says, Do not believe me unless I do what my father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Once again, at the end of verse 38, a blasphemous statement in the Jews' eyes, that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. He is claiming to be God. But he says, look at my miracles, look at my works, is a literal translation of the Greek word there. Look at my works, my good works. And they testify that I belong to God that the God the Father is in me and I in the Father and that I am God himself come here in human flesh. He again and again points to his miracles to prove his divinity, to prove that he is God. And people do pick up on this. We've seen this again and again as we've studied John's gospel together. They know that he is from God by his miracles. The blind man knew that. Just turn with me back to chapter 9, that wonderful passage that we explored together. John chapter 9, verse 33, where the blind man, well, he's not blind anymore, he's had his eyes opened, and he's speaking to the Jews, and he says in verse 33 of chapter 9, if this man referring to Jesus were not from God, he could do nothing. He knows that Jesus is from God, and the common people knew as well by his miracles that he was God, that he had come from God, verse 21. But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Once again, a miracle. 
a work of God, plus the sayings of Jesus hold true, that this man is far greater than we imagine. And he certainly can't be a demon. He can't be a demon-possessed man. And even Christ's enemies recognise that he is doing good work. It's very interesting when Jesus says to them, which of the works that I'm doing is the reason that you're going to stone me? And what do they say in verse 33? We are not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you are mere man claimed to be God. It's interesting. The Jews do not deny his miracles. They do not deny his good works. They can't stone him for his work because it's clearly from God. But instead they're latching on to his teachings and saying this is blasphemous and so therefore you are worthy of death. So Jesus here defends his divinity in two ways. One is by the lesser to the greater argument, by looking at the Old Testament scriptures, but also by pointing once again to his miracles to prove that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. And so what do the Jews do in response to Jesus' defence of his divinity? Well, we see they respond with violence. Verse 39, again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. This is a classic case of cutting down the tall poppies. We understand this in Australia, don't we? Where if anybody is higher, what do Australians like to do? We like to chop them down, get them down to size. And just imagine who Jesus is. He's one who feeds the hungry. He's one who cures skin diseases. He helps the blind to see. He helps the lame to walk. He teaches well. These are all wonderful things. And so what do some people want to do when anyone wonderful is presented? We want to chop him down, get him down to size. We won't give you a medal for all the good things you've done. Instead, we'll try and get rid of you altogether. Is that what you want to do this morning as well in the face of the declaration here that Jesus is God? You want to cut down the tallest poppy to ever walk the face of this earth. Do you want to deny him and try and get rid of him from your life and from the life of others? Or do you want to respond rightly to him? What's the right response in the face of of Jesus' declaration that he is in the Father and the Father is in him and he and the Father are one. What is the right response? Confess your sin, your rebellion against him, the God who made you, and to start to trust in him and to follow him and worship and love and glorify and honour him. We saw the instruction given in Deuteronomy chapter 6 from Uh, our second Bible reading there this morning, that we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and all our strength. That is what we do when we hear that the Father is in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father. We are supposed to love him as our God. Not try to pick up stones and stone him and remove him from our lives. We're supposed to worship him. We're supposed to worship him throughout our lives And more particularly, what's the most obvious way we're supposed to worship the Lord Jesus? By doing what we're doing here this morning. By gathering together to worship Jesus as our God. That's what we're doing this morning when we gather together. And that's what I want to encourage you to keep on doing. I want you to rejoice in the fact that you know God in Jesus Christ. And that you worship him when you gather on Sunday mornings 
that we, when we come and attend a church service here, we're attending a worship service. We're worshipping our God as manifest in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've had some people say to me before, it seems like the people at Dremoyne Baptist, they really place a high importance on attendance at their services. And they think that that's not really right. You can be a Christian and not attend church. Well, how do you worship God? Yes, we worship him throughout our week, but he also has given us instructions on how to worship him. And he encourages us to come on the first day of the week as a uh, a representation of his resurrection from the dead. He was raised on the first day of the week, an honouring of that first day, that resurrection day so many years ago. We come together and we do the things that he has prescribed for us to do, which are ways that we worship him. What do we do? Well, we sing praises to God. We pray to God. We give of our resources to God. We give of our money, which is an act of worship. We read the Bible. We hear the Bible taught. And these are ways that he has prescribed for us to worship him. Now, you may say, of course, it's obvious that we, when we come together and we do those things, that we're worshipping God. Isn't it obvious whenever people sing Christian songs, they're worshipping God? Isn't it obvious that whenever people pray Christian prayers or give money to Christian churches or read the Bible or hear the Bible taught, that they're at worship? The answer is no. People can do those things but they're not actually at worship. Interesting, the Australian government, in its kindness to Christian churches, often gives funding to Christian churches. We've been even recipients of that here, and we give us tax breaks in different ways. They're giving money to us. Does that mean that those politicians that give funding to churches are at worship? No. What about when it comes to singing Christian songs? Is that always an act of worship? Well, it's interesting. I've got two atheist friends, and they took me along to hear Haydn's creation. So Haydn, the musician, he wrote this wonderful uh, songs of, about the creation of the world based from Genesis, and Adam and Eve sing these marvellous songs. And my atheist friend was there, and she was part of the choir. That's one of the reasons we went along to see her, and she took another of her friends uh, with me. And so we sat and we watched her and we listened to her sing in English. It was written in German originally, but it's been translated into English, and it was here done at the town hall in Sydney. And she sang. This is an ardent atheist who just a few weeks ago told me there's no way there could be anything more than what we see around us. Very firm. She sang these words after... The creation of the world, as described in Genesis, was sung. She sang these words, Achieved is the glorious work. Our song let be the praise of God. Glory to his name forever. His soul on high, exalted reigns. Hallelujah. She sang those words with gusto and enjoyed it, was thrilled to be there with this large choir singing these words. And my other atheist friend there, he loves classical music, and he sat there and drank it in. And I said to them afterwards, how can you do that? And they just laughed and said, it's beautiful music. We don't have to believe what's being said. And so you say, of course, whenever anyone sings a Christian hymn, they're at worship. No, it's not true. 
But for the Christian, if he believes Jesus is God, when he sings a Christian song, it is worship. When you come on Sunday mornings and you sing as someone who believes that the Father is in him and he is in the Father, it is worship. And it's the same with prayers. You say, oh, of course, whenever anyone prays Christian prayers, they must be at worship. No, people can rattle through a prayer book and not believe anything that they're praying. People can rattle the Lord's Prayer, the one that Jesus gave us to pray. And they don't actually believe what they're saying. An atheist can read the Bible aloud and teach it at secular universities, study it as a very interesting uh, study of anthropology, not theology, anthropology, the study of man and how this religion has been fabricated over the centuries. They study it very carefully, more carefully than many Christians. Is it an act of worship? No, it's not because they do not believe that the Father is in Christ and Christ is in the Father. That is the difference when we do these things on Sundays, when we sing Christian songs, when we pray Christian prayers, when we give of our finances, when we hear the word read and explained. These are acts of worship. When we give our money, we're not giving to a quaint historical club, like we might join a a club in the area. No, we're giving as an act of worship. When we sing, we're not singing like we sing pop songs in the car. We're singing as an act of worship. When we pray, we speak to Jesus. We're not saying platitudes into the air. I was watching a documentary um, which is on minimalism and trying to reduce the things that you have in your house, which is quite the craze at the moment. And there's this Japanese woman who's uh, very big on this and it's catching on in the Western world as well. And... uh, And she likes to, every item that you pick up, and before you get rid of it, you say thank you to it. So your old sweater, you say thank you to it. The pair of socks with holes in them, you say thank you to the socks. You say thank you to the home that you live in. Everything that you have, you say thank you to it. What are you doing? Speaking platitudes into the air. But that's not what we do when we pray at church. We're speaking to one who is alive, not a pair of socks. We're speaking to the one who is God himself, revealed in Jesus Christ. And when we read God's word and hear it preached, it's not like studying Shakespeare. It is worship because we know that this is the voice of God as we hear it read aloud. When Anthony read it aloud before, it wasn't Anthony speaking, it was God speaking. God speaking to us, and it was an act of worship for us to sit there and listen to our God speak. Once we believe Jesus is God, it changes everything we do, including these Sunday morning services. These Sunday morning services are not for the benefit of ourselves. We don't come to church because we need credit for salvation. We don't come to church because we want to be better people, although that is a side effect of coming along to church. Why do we come on Sunday mornings to church? It is to glorify God, not glorify ourselves or the others around us. Aren't we great here at Dremoyne Baptist? No, the idea is when we come at Sunday morning services is we're meant to be saying, isn't God great? Not Dremoyne Baptist or aren't I great for coming along to church? No, we come to glorify God as revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And so once we realise that these morning services on Sunday are worship services, it changes how we treat them. 
when we consider that they're worship services, not some sort of health improvement, self-help improvement service instead. We treat them differently. And that's why, children, I encourage you to be a part of these services. That's why we don't send you out of these services. You may find these services boring. You may find the things that we do here boring. But understand that we keep you in these services because we believe that you're at worship as prescribed by God. We didn't make the rules. We didn't make the rule that we're going to hear from the Bible, that we're going to pray and we're going to sing songs and that we're going to give our money. No, God has told us to do those things. And so we come and do what he has prescribed for us as worship. And that's why we like that you stay here. And that's why I love that parents, even though it's a bit of a struggle, you continue to try and do it because you understand that this is worship. This isn't like going, taking your kids to a lecture at school or something else. This is worship. And it's good for them to be here and to be involved in the worship as much as we can possibly get them to be involved, which is often very hard to get them involved at all. But we try because we want them to worship God as prescribed by him. And as adults, we start to treat the services differently as well. We don't skip services for any old reason. Like a child wants to skip school, truant school, just because, oh, yeah, I can take it or leave it today. No, if we understand that we go to church because it's to glorify God, we don't skip it, just like we wouldn't skip regular meetings with the CEO of our company. If you were employed by a company and the CEO said, every week I'm going to meet with you, and you say, oh, yeah, I don't need to go and see him today. I've got something better to do. You wouldn't do it. When you understand that Jesus is God and that he has ordained that you will come and meet with him once a week and worship him in a particular fashion, you don't just blow it off like it's no big deal if I skip church this week. And also shows... Uh, we treat it with respect if we understand that these services are worshipped by the fact that we show up on time. I know some people are habitually late to everything. Um, and I know it's very difficult for some people to show up on time to church services. And there's different things that take your time. But it is interesting that I know that some people who I do know who are habitually late to everything, they're always on time when it comes to the airport. When they need to be at the airport, they're on time. Why is that? Why can they be on time to the airport? Well, if it's a holiday they're going on, they don't want to miss the joy. Imagine if they miss the plane. Maybe a whole, depending on the location where they're going, maybe a few days before they get to in, in, take part in the joy that is in the future. And so it is if we understand that these are worship services which should be a joy for us. If we miss part of the service, we actually miss part of the joy. If we miss the first song, we miss part of the joy of that first song of honouring God and worshipping him as he has prescribed. Also, how else does it change us? If, how do we treat these services if we consider them to be worship? Well, it means that we prepare for worship. If you go on a date and you're looking to impress the other person, well, you will prepare yourself for the date. You will rest well. You won't stay up late and go half asleep to the date. You will wash, hopefully, you will plan the time and the place that you're going to. You may even think about conversation topics and what you will do on the date. And so you make preparations. And if you're a Christian, you would probably pray about the date. Pray that it will go well and that you'll be wise on that date with that person that you're considering maybe one day you will marry. 
And so it is, if we consider these services to be worship, we will prepare for them. We'll make sure we're rested, that we're washed and not distracted, and we may even pray about them. You may pray about going on a date and you may get other people to pray, your parents, pray that it goes well. And that's what we can do for these worship services. Pray about the fact that I'm going to come and Lord, help me to have a right frame of mind so that I can give you honour. And you may pray with others. And we actually facilitate that by having a prayer meeting before the service that you can join with others. And if everyone is welcome. It's a small room. We've never filled it up so that we have to move somewhere else, but we can if needs be. You're all welcome to come and prepare for the service by praying with us. Because we understand that when we meet together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, it is worship. And fourthly, if you see these services as worship, you will pay attention during worship. We pay attention to friends when they speak to us. We don't look at the wall or look at the floor and tune out because we respect them. We want to honour them when we're in communication with them. And so it is if we see these services as worship, as times to glorify and honour God. We don't want to disrespect our precious Jesus by tuning out when he speaks, by tuning out even when we talk to him in song or in prayer. We don't want to disrespect him in that way. Now, I know that many of you treat Jesus with the greatest of respects, that you do believe that he is God and that you do seek to worship him when you come on Sundays. And I delight in that fact. I delight in that fact. I know some of you fall asleep. Some of you think the floor is more interesting. But I know that many of you find worship services a joy and a delight And I rejoice and delight in that because I know then that you know that Jesus is God and that when you come on Sunday mornings, you are at worship of the one that you believe to be your God. And so if you're distracted in worship, I rejoice that many of you appear to enjoy worship on Sunday mornings, but we all get distracted. We all get distracted We all don't see worship the way we should at all times. What do you do in those situations? Well, you've got to go back to the fact of what you're trying to do at worship, and that is honour Jesus as God. What's the problem if you don't treat worship as worship? If you don't treat it with respect? It's because you're not believing that Jesus is God. You're not trusting in him as you should. You're not seeing him worthy of exaltation and honour on Sunday mornings. We all struggle and we can all cry with that man who said to Jesus, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And so what do we need to do if we're finding ourselves distracted in worship? I had someone even this week saying to me, I really struggle to concentrate during the singing Other parts of the service is fine, but during the singing, I struggle to concentrate. What is that person to do? Once again, go back to the fact that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in Jesus and he is your God and he is worthy of your worship. Once you understand who he is, you can treat him with greater respect and in the ways that he has prescribed. Why would you get distracted? It fits with so many things. Why would you get distracted when your spouse is talking and you tune out? 
because you've lost the fact that you love her and you desire her and you're interested in her and who she belongs to you. When you first meet her, yes, everything she says is wonderful. Later on, maybe, you get distracted and it's because you've started to forget about what you believe about your wife or your husband. And it's the same with God. It's easy to start to forget what you actually believe about Jesus, that he is God and he is worthy of respect. And so if you struggle to treat Sunday morning services as worship, then you need to go back to this passage and once again hear the words of Jesus Christ. I and the Father are one. You need to know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father because if you do that, then everything else flows out of that. Because of the fact that Jesus is your God, once you believe that, once you know and understand that, then you will want to worship him because you will delight in him and rejoice in him and know his love and affection for you as your God. Let's come to him in prayer. Let's speak with him now. Lord Jesus, we praise you as God. And we ask that if anyone here does not believe that you are God, awaken them even now to the fact that you are the one who reigns. Lord, we ask, though, that you would forgive us for the times we have not worshipped you as we should. Help us, O God, to worship you more carefully in the future and to do so with joy, knowing that the Father is in you and you are in the Father. You and the Father are one. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember that we are worshipping the God who reigns, our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer, our friend. And so we would give you the respect and the honour and glory here on Sunday mornings, but also throughout the rest of the week. And we pray this in your name. Amen.